folks, and welcome to this week's Fallon Forum. As always, we try to bring you independent voices as well as civil dialogue across that uh, gaping political divide. I'm Ed Fallon, I'm your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. And if you value what we do, we could sure use your support. Uh, visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business or a nonprofit, consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway has an excellent local produce selection as well, and also check out their catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines' East Village. Uh, Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from five from sorry from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. All right, so today we're going to uh, discuss the right and wrong ways to accomplish carbon sequestration, and we've got a real expert, uh, June Sakara, joining us for that conversation. We'll also talk with architect Mark Clipsham about uh, why it's a bad idea to water your lawn. And finally, uh, Kathy Burns will join us for our farm and food segment. We're going to be discussing a Farm Bureau article that kind of blatantly, flagrantly encourages backyard herbicide use, kind of going in the opposite of direction that Mark Clipsham recommends. But first, it is my pleasure to welcome to the program Vicki Harrison. She's with Common Cause. She's the director of Constitutional Convention and Protecting Dissent Programs. She previously directed Common Cause in New Mexico. Vicki, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Ed. So this may be off the radar for most people, so let's start at square one. What is a constitutional convention? It is absolutely off the radar for most people. So, Ed, under Article 5 in our Constitution, there are two ways to change the Constitution. One is the amendment process that people are familiar with. It's something we've done 27 times. There's another sentence in there that will allow the Constitution to be rewritten once two-thirds of the states petitioned Congress for that to happen. That has never happened. In fact, it happened one time, and that's when we wrote our current Constitution. There's a reason why it has not been used since then. So why why did America's founders include it in there in the first place? Any idea? No idea. I've thought about that, and we have discussed that. I've talked to legal scholars, and, you know, again, when they went in to write this Constitution, they threw out the rules that they themselves had created to (laughs) write it. So who knows what they were doing? (laughs) They weren't even listening to what they themselves had said they would do days before. Okay, so amending the Constitution has been a good thing overall, right? I mean... Uh, Absolutely. The Constitution is living. Let's let it be amended. So why is this a bad idea? This is a bad idea because there are no rules at all. So when you start asking, you know, we know how the amendment process works. Congress, the states, the people are involved. With an Article 5 constitutional convention, there are no rules at all. And so who would be part of the convention? What would they discuss? What powers would they have? What role would the courts play? What would Congress, I mean, there's no idea. So this idea of no rules and what we call a runaway convention, 
let's say they're going to go in and say, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And they really end up doing A, B, and C. And the people, they are completely shut out of this. And we so, see how state legislatures are working anyway. Why would we, as one of my former board members says about a constitutional convention, why would you set your house on fire and then pray the fire department shows up? And- <laughs> well, maybe to collect the insurance. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but still not, not advised, not advised. But still... Uh, so there's got to be, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I would assume there's some guidelines as to how the convention is called. Uh, I mean, there's got to be, in any, in any game, there's got to be an umpire or a referee. And What it says is once you've got 34 states that call for this, but that's all it says. It just says our two-thirds. And then once it passes, it must be ratified by three-fifths. But the problem, Ed, is there are no rules. So that's why you have different campaigns that are trying to get to the magic 34 number. But then you also have some campaigns that are combining other campaigns and that are bringing in what we call plenary applications or generic applications, literally going back decades and quite frankly, some of them a couple of hundred years ago and trying to bring them into their count, which is why people get so confused. Ed, there are a million different counts out there. And which one is correct? What what, do you say, a million different counts? Uh, Because you have to reach 34. So if you look at the the one that's closest right now is the balanced budget amendment. They have 28 states. But there are other applications out there that have passed in other states that don't say the balanced budget amendment. But folks like Rob Nadelson are trying to combine them all into one so they can reach their threshold. So So according to their math, they've got 36 or 39 or 31 states. Yes. And they don't. Okay. Yeah, so that that would be for the courts to determine whether they're whose numbers are right. But the bottom line is course, we're getting we're getting close. And on that's it. the other problem, though, Ed, is there's nothing in Article Five of the Constitution that even mentions the courts. Okay. So do they have a role? We just don't know. That is why we are talking about the dangers of this. It's yeah. so unknown. And why would you rewrite your constitution if you have no rules? You don't know who's going to be in charge and who's going to make the rules once you get there. So with uh, with Washington, D.C., with the federal government being so dysfunctional, even under Democratic control, I mean, maybe you could argue it's less dysfunctional in the last few months if I should accomplish some things. But uh, is it possible that some good might come out of putting this back to a local level where, where you know, states at least have more input? Is it possible you might see some good stuff come out of it? If there were rules, Ed, but right now, when you look at our country and what happens in state legislatures, I mean, I've lobbied state legislatures for decades, and that's not is what is happening. We don't know who is going to be sent. We have seen what money and politics have done to this country, Mm -hmm. and we have seen the floodgates. So is it going to be your grocery clerk from New Mexico, from Taos, New Mexico, that goes to the convention, or is it going to be a high-powered donor? 
Yeah, who decides? Who figures that out? Who decides? And who is pushing a constitutional convention? That's a good question, right? Who is? That You have to follow the money. And so, again, we are talking about people like Alec and the Koch brothers. And Alec and is the American Legislative Scott Exchange. Walker, con- yes. Yeah, that's the American Legislative Exchange Council. Council. And they are really, they're, they're behind so much of the right-wing legislation coming out of states. I mean, even, you know, I was a lawmaker for 14 years, and I remember they were, they would basically just take their legislation to, you know, leaders of, uh, Republican leaders of committees, and they would be, a, you know, they would be introduced almost verbatim, and that's happening all over the country. And so Alec from is behind From everything, this. everything yeah. from environmental bills to stand your ground to uh, being able to legally run over protesters in 2022. I mean, voting rights bills, so many. And what Alec does is they charge legislators, you know, $5 to join, and they charge corporate folks tens of thousands to join, and they put them together. And the corporate folks come and say, here's some legislation that I'd like you to pass. Right. And I used to have people, Ed, ask me, what's the difference between that and what Common Cause does? Because you show up with your money and politics bills and your voting rights bills and your gerrymandering bills. And I'm like, well, I don't monetarily benefit, whereas yeah. the corporations are monetarily benefiting right. in some way from passing these bills. Often, these are the folks yeah. that are behind pushing this. Scott Walker is a huge part of this now, We're, pushing for convention of states and a balanced budget amendment. A Wisconsin Scott Walker. The Wisconsin Scott Walker. Okay. Right. Okay. So, uh, yeah. You you mentioned a bunch of things and uh, what what I mean none of those are, are are legislative initiatives that I would agree with and I suspect that if you poll most Americans on them most Americans would probably not be in agreement with most of that agenda so how do they how do they accomplish that against the will of the majority of people because the people don't really have a place in a constitutional convention Ed. There's really no place where the public has a, a way to insert what they want. And there is typically about 150 to 160 calls introduced each year in this country. Um, this year was a little light at 131. <laughs> and so we, we work to stop them. And then we also work to rescind old calls that are on the books. Okay. What, what is the what, their what is the oldest one? What which, which state went first in this oh, department? Gosh, oh, that's a good question. I don't even know. I've worked on some from the 1700s, and um, I mean, there, there's been calls all for decades and hundreds of years on all kinds of things. But so I, I, I would assume that, I would assume, assume a call for a convention back in the 1700s is is a moot point that that's no longer valid, correct? Well, and again, that is part of the uncertainty around mm, this. Gotcha. Um, you know, some of them uh, we think are absolutely invalid because we don't need them anymore. So, for example, one that many did, many states did was, you know, we want to elect senators. And, well, we elect senators. We don't really need that constitutional convention. And the pro-convention folks back in 2018 started talking about what we call fuzzy math. Instead of just saying balanced budget amendment has passed in 28 states, 
Convention of States has passed in 19 states. They're pulling these old plenary generic applications up and saying, oh, well, actually we have more. And so while we totally disagree with that, there's nothing out there that says they can do that. We are getting rid of all we can get rid of. So what are the battleground states right now in terms of uh, where, where, we, where we see momentum toward calling for a constitutional convention? Well, unfortunately, South Carolina was a hard loss this year. Um, we have held balanced budget at 27. In fact, we've uh, re rescinded some of theirs in the last five or six years. And they've been trying to pass in South Carolina really hard, both convention of states and balanced budget amendment, and they both were successful, um, unfortunately, this year. Convention of states actually picked up four states this year, going from 15 to 19. And, you know, looking forward um, for battleground states in 2023, you know, it's any state that has not, with balanced budget being the closest, that's where we want to stop them from passing. Now, and now, now let me jump in on the balanced budget issue. I went, again, when I was a lawmaker, and it's still the case, uh, Iowa has a balanced budget amendment. That Yes, you do. Yeah, and that never, I mean, Democratic and Republican lawmakers, for the most part, supported that. Right. And it seems to be working in our favor. And uh, I mean, what, what's the argument against it? The problem with the balanced budget amendment, Ed, is that our country is not like your grandma's checkbook, okay? <laughs> and think about the pandemic. If we would have had a balanced budget amendment, no pandemic relief. That's what a balanced budget says. That's what these guys are trying to do. They're pushing a balanced budget mm. amendment and have for decades because they want to take control away from our federal government to be able to do things like respond to a pandemic. Okay. That's exactly what would happen. And, you know, that's the problem with talking about a balanced budget amendment is, you know, in, in when you do advocacy, everybody knows about your elevator speech, you know, how you can quickly tell people about your issue. And you, it's really hard to have an elevator speech on balanced budget amendment <laughs> because most people say, well, I can balance my checkbook. Of course, my city or state or federal government should be able to do that. Yeah. But that's not in reality. And quite frankly, on the right, it's the business people that totally get that, you yeah. know. Right, and right. there is support on both the right and the left, I mean, to stop a constitutional convention. In fact, former Supreme Court Justice Scalia, for God's sake, said this would be the worst idea ever. And it's a bad idea. We just got a little time left. So how close are we to seeing this come to fruition? The pro-convention folks think and are putting out that they are within 24 months of calling a constitutional convention. In fact, we had three uh, folks in Congress just last month uh, introduce uh, a bill saying you need to count up the conventions and we think we've already hit it and we're going to call it. So what is the plan once it sounds like it's going to happen? What is the plan for trying to minimize the damage? Well, actually, I'm saying that's what pro-convention folks think. We don't right. think it's fixed oh, okay. to happen because we're going to keep stopping them. Ed. Gotcha, gotcha. We are going to keep rescinding and we are going to defend them. Balanced budget amendment is the closest one. And if you look at the map, 
they don't have a way to victory with the current states they don't have as long as quite frankly we have democratic legislators in those states and a few republicans in those states who stop this and that's what we're going to keep doing i hope your listeners will check out our website and get involved in any state that they're in because like i said there are something's introduced in your state every year to call this yeah well vicky uh, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us uh Folks, we've been talking with uh, Vicki Harrison with uh, Common Cause, and you can learn more about efforts to put the brakes on the Constitutional Convention train uh, at their website, correct? You absolutely can, commoncause.org. All right. Hey, folks, uh, when we come back from a short break, uh, we're going to be talking with uh, June Sakara with, uh, well, about carbon sequestration. Uh, big deal here on, in the upper Midwest. Uh There are the right ways to do it, the wrong ways to do it. We'll get her expert take on that when we come back from a short break on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Vibes Kitchen and Bar in downtown Des Moines at the corner of 13th and Walnut serves clever, creative, modern interpretations of American classic bites and drinks. The Vibes team offers great food and customer service in a relaxed and welcoming atmosphere. Vibes is the perfect place for your party or function, and it's got an outdoor patio ideal for hobnobbing with friends and co-workers or for watching your favorite sports team. Learn more at Vibes Kitchen and Bar's Facebook page. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, at a time when big corporations control most of the media, our niche here is more important than ever. So please support what we do. You can go to the Fallon Forum website, check us out, sign up for the weekly blogs, donate, even better, become a monthly sponsor. And uh, speaking of sponsors, uh, thanks to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Again, thanks for joining us today, folks. And uh, looking ahead later in the uh, program, we'll talk with architect Mark Klipsham about why you should never water your lawn. All right. We'll also talk with Kathy Burns about a Farm Bureau article that encourages backyard herbicide use. Hmm, pondering that. And that's kind of going the opposite direction that Mark recommends. 
I would now like to welcome to the program uh, June Sakara. Uh, she's a public policy scholar and researcher whose most recent work focuses on carbon sequestration, including the uh, discovery that subsidies for carbon removal emit more CO2 into the air than they remove. And that research uh, has been cited by the International Panel on Climate Change. Uh, June, welcome to the program. Thank you. Yeah, so, um, you know, I mean, this is a national issue. It's an inter international concern, of course, but here in Iowa and the upper Midwest, proposed uh, carbon dioxide pipelines are a big deal, uh, and they're proposed to cut through about 2,000 miles of some of the best farmland in the world. Just That's just in Iowa. And the corporations behind those pipelines, Summit, Navigator, Valero, Archer Daniels Midland, they're all claiming they're doing this in part to address the climate crisis. You know, and more and more people are saying, well, that's a crock of organic nutrient. Um, this is not a way to address the climate crisis. Uh, what's your take on, on their claim to that effect? Well, you're kind of jumping to the end of my conclusions. And what I'd kind of like to do is to back up and give your listeners an understanding of um, what this stuff is okay. and, and then get to why it doesn't work and, and why let's uh, do I that. found that conclusion. Okay, let's do that. Okay. Well, let me do a little bit of um, carbon capture 101. Um, so, and this stuff is pretty hard to understand because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of obfuscation and a lot of clever wording that, that goes on. Um, so, I mean, the bottom line is that there's been a big push in the last few years to reduce the level of CO2 in the atmosphere. And this is usually referred to as carbon dioxide removal, or what you'll hear more often is uh, carbon capture. Right. And the important thing is to understand that taxpayers have been subsidizing this so-called carbon capture for several years. And there's a whole lot more money in it, uh, in the, for it, in the um, Inflation Reduction Act that right. Biden just signed, Congress just passed. Um, the estimates range from $3 billion to $17 billion uh, in tax credits. It's a wide range because it's tax credits and nobody knows how many dollars are going to be sure. you know, claimed in right. tax credits. Um, so, so the problem that this activity is meant to address is that there's been a huge human-caused buildup of CO2 in the atmosphere, right, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and that's driving climate change. So getting into this carbon capture stuff, there's two general ways to reduce the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And one is biological methods like preserving and restoring forests and restoring grasslands and wetlands. Right. And the other way is uh, artificial carbon removal um, using mechanical methods. And some, and, of, the, some of those can yeah. take carbon dioxide right out of the air. Others try to capture it at the source of emission. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so let me take let me set aside biological methods for a minute and just talk about these artificial uh, methods, the two types you just talked about. And the, the first point I want to make is that um, these mechanical chemical processes, uh, that, that there's been zero carbon removal from the atmosphere by any of these methods in the U.S., even though U.S. taxpayers have been subsidizing them for many years, we've paid $23 billion since 2010. And they haven't worked. And they haven't worked. And, they, and they're and they removing zero CO2 from the atmosphere. And how, how, it's how really do, important how, to how understand do we, that. How do we know that? 
Um, okay, so so um, we know that because, well, let me just say before I answer that question, okay. every single carbon capture project at a power plant in the United States has failed. Uh, we spent $1 billion on that. and um, But there are carbon capture projects going on, and the ones that are going on are the ones that, as you said, capture at sources. So one of these artificial methods is you capture the CO2 at smokestacks as it comes out of smokestacks. And right. it doesn't work because it doesn't pull any CO2 from the atmosphere. It's sort of by definition, right? right. Um, all your, all that, that method is trying to do is to stop the new emissions from coming out of the smokestacks. And it's not even doing that very well. It's doing that very, very poorly. Only tiny fractions of the emissions at any project are actually being captured. But worse, the captured carbon at every single project except one in the United States is used to pump out more oil. So, so that, the, that's what's called enhanced oil recovery, which is similar, right. to, similar to fracking, I believe. But, you know, that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of call I Sometimes I call it carbon fracking. It's where you right. they um, they inject the captured CO2 in the ground and that uh, forces out more uh, new oil from existing oil wells. Yeah, because typically, so, typically they use a mixture of water, sand and chemicals. Yeah, but, well, in this case, it's carbon dioxide. The, right, the water sand right. and chemicals is fracking, but in this case, it's they, they pump in carbon dioxide in a super-cooled liquid steak, and, and it acts as a solvent, and it actually, uh, it's sort of, well, I won't get into the, the whole description, but anyway, what it does is it forces out the, mm -hmm. right. um, the oil that's left in the oil wells, and a, some of the carbon dioxide stays underground, so they call it a climate mitigation methods, right. method. Right. So, so I mean, it's not pulling any CO2 out of the air, and it's adding new CO2 to the air, and that's the only kind of carbon capture going on in the country right now. And it's all so, being, almost all being used for enhanced oil recovery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, uh, and we're paying for it. It's all being subsidized. The only reason this can be done and the only reason it pencils out for the companies that are doing it, uh, which are uh, in, many of them are oil companies, is because we're subsidizing it. Right. And Summit, ba Summit basically admitted that when, when, when Kathy and I questioned Summit officials about, um, you know, about whether or not they'd be doing this if, there, if the 45Q tax credit didn't exist, they basically said no. <laughs> so they, they admitted it. They basically That's admitted interesting. it. That's interesting. They also basically, they also, well, they basically, they said, I can even send you the link, they said that uh, they have no plans to use it for enhanced oil recovery, but they couldn't make that firm progress. It depends on what the market indicates going forward. Oh, they said that to you. Do you have that written? <laughs> uh, we, have, we have it recorded. No, better than written, we have it recorded. Okay, yeah. okay. That, yeah. That's very important because yeah. they admitted, they did say initially that they were going to use the captured CO2 that they captured from the ethanol plants uh, for enhanced oil recovery, for oil extraction. And then they clammed up as soon as um, right. the Sierra Club and other organizations uh, began to ask about it. Well, they clammed up. Bold Eye was fortunate enough to have a presence at some of the first meetings before they got their talking points in order. <laughs> because, Excellent. Excellent. Because they were pretty, uh, it was pretty clear that they, um, they, they weren't willing to commit to not using it. And again, at least here, the, uh, the two destinations for the uh, carbon dioxide they'll be sequestering in these pipelines are... North Dakota, where there is oil, and Illinois, where there is more oil. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly, so. exactly. Yeah, so um, it, there's a good chance. I mean, it depends. You know, I mean, they just got the new uh, Inflation Reduction Act just at, just increased the 45Q tax credit. Right. 
by what 70% I think a huge increase that yep. these people have been lobbying for for a long time so it does make it profitable to just bury the stuff underground right um, but they get even more money if they uh, sell it for CO2 sure. for, uh, for enhanced oil recovery right so so, that... so the other method yes. um, just to just finish out the little carbon capture 101 here uh, so one method is pulling it from smokestacks the other are you know in the in case of Iowa uh, ethanol facilities, smokestacks there. The other method is to pull the CO2 out of the air, and uh, that uses ma uh, machines and chemicals, and there's no DODAC, it's called direct air capture. There's no direct air capture operation in the U.S. aside from a couple of tiny experimental projects, and there's one DAC project on the planet right now, and it's in Iceland. Iceland it's got yeah. a huge amount of press. Yeah, and and, and I, I was, and I, th I believe if they were to to uh, use that method to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, they would need like hundreds of thousands of these plants or something, some some crazy number, some ridiculous number. Right, right, exactly. And that's part of the issue with the DAC, this uh, direct air capture, is it would take thousands of plants and thousands of miles of pipelines to get to any kind of scale. In fact, this plant that got so much press uh, in Iceland uh, when it opened a few months ago, um, someone pointed, a scientist pointed out that in a year, it'll capture three seconds worth of humanity's CO2 emissions. That's how tiny this, wow. this you know, operation is. It's touted as a big, you know, advance. Yeah. So we know the wrong way to do this is the way we're doing it. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's it's demonstrably not working. We can prove that. Uh, what about the right way to do it? Yeah, that's uh, biological um, uh, sequestration. I don't know if there's enough time, but I wanted to also make sure that your that your listeners are aware of um, the risks and dangers of uh, underground uh, storage and of pipelines and sure. pipelines in particular. Yes, please. Um, you know, there, as you mentioned, there's these pipeline companies that are planning to build the pipelines right now. Well, pipelines rupture. Well, uh, first of all, they they. Building the pipelines causes problems in, in farmland with soil compaction and drainage issues, as yep. I'm sure a lot of your oh, listeners yeah. know. Um, and then when they're built, they rupture. They can rupture, and that uh, has happened. And when C a CO2 pipeline ruptures, um, you can't smell it or see it, uh, but it results in an explosive release of a cloud of CO2 that settles on the ground because it's denser than oxygen. And it uh, moves around into lower-lying areas, and then it, can, it potentially sickens or kills people and animals for miles around because um, CO2 in a dense state is toxic and lethal to humans and to animals. And it makes – here's the important thing. It makes uh, – well, not – it's also uh, important that people can be killed and um, get sure. sick. But, but it makes internal combustion engines inoperable. Right which means that victims can't escape and emergency responders yeah. can't get to victims. That happened in Satarsi, Mississippi a few years ago. That's right. Yeah, in 2010. Uh, it sent 49 people to the hospital and left uh, many of them with long-term health impacts. Yeah. Uh, more than 250 had to be, people had to be evacuated. And indeed, residence cars um, ceased to run, yeah. and victims were found dazed and unconscious in right. their cars when the rescuers could finally get to them. Now, Bold Iowa has another uh, a, a video clip of one of the summit officials um, saying that uh, we this pipeline is not the same doesn't propose doesn't pose the same risk as the the pipeline in Satarsha because it's only quote pure carbon dioxide. They're trying to blame the Satarsha problem on the hydrogen sulfide. I believe that was also in the pipeline, which um, again is just wrong. 
Yeah, I mean, really, the what caused what caused the rupture was earth movement due to heavy rains, and that's that's what all the press reports and and other investigations um, say. And so the earth slid and the pipeline ruptured, and heavy rains are in fact what's you know increasingly happening, right? Oh yeah. And this was in Mississippi. So are we going to have heavier rains, heavy rains, and more land moving around? Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, CO2 pipelines already in Mississippi because right. they've been doing uh, carbon capture. Uh, they've been doing EOR down there for a long time. Right. And in uh, the Midwest, uh, you're also having inundations. So um, that's what caused the rupture. And that can happen again. So we just got a couple minutes left, June, um, to the question of the right way to do carbon sequestration. Right. So bio- biological methods like um, sequestering by uh, in- enhancing the ability of uh, trees and restoring uh, grasslands and wetlands and so forth. Um, I just did some work on this. And um, so the data that we gathered show that uh, right now uh, these uh, these forest trees, grasslands, et cetera, are sequestering one billion tons, one gigaton, it's called, of uh, CO2 already in the United States. And that's um, 20% of our uh, annual emissions. And in fact, it would not be difficult, except for political will, um, which isn't there, to get to two gigatons, two billion tons, Mm. via these uh, biological methods. Um, And if we did that, the data show that, in fact, we could accomplish within 10 years sequestration of two gigatons per year, 40% of annual emissions using these biological methods. And remember, this is contrasted with zero right. removal right now by these mechanical methods. Uh, is there enough land available to plant enough trees, to restore enough wetlands, to plant enough grasslands to accomplish those kinds of goals? So the data that we looked at and the calculations we did show that it would take actually less land to use biological methods than hmm. to right. uh, use direct air capture because to use direct air capture if it's going to be done and not emit more CO2, it has to renew, use renewable energy. And the right. amount of land that is required to uh, to capture through this DAC method, all in all, it boils down between the, the uh, vast amounts of land required for the plants and the pipelines. You're going to use more land yeah. for DAC, for the mechanical method, than for the biological mm. methods. That's what the data show. And that's what nobody has really shown and biological methods always take a hit because of the land issue. Well, right. the land issue really is worse with worse with a mechanical method. That's interesting. Uh, June, uh, thank you uh, so much for taking the time to visit with our audience. Well, thank you for the invitation to talk with you. Folks have been talking with June Sakara about carbon sequestration done the right way and done the wrong way. Hey, this is Ed Fallon. We'll, we've got to take a short break and we'll be back in just a minute with more conversation on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. 
Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks. You know, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Uh, check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for large and small animals for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. Yeah, later in the program, uh, Kathy and I are going to be discussing a uh, Farm Bureau article that basically says, um, yeah, you should go ahead and, and use herbicides on your lawn. On the flip side of that, uh, I want to welcome Mark Clipsham to the program. Mark is an architect, and um, we're going to talk about lawns. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure Mark doesn't think we should dump a lot of herbicides on one's lawn, right, Mark? On my prairie? What are you talking about? Oh, you don't even have a lawn, do you? Oh, I, I do have parts. It is more biodiversity than most people's entire yard, but neither here nor there. <laughs> so, yeah, and you dump, a lot of, you dump a lot of chemicals on the part that is actually Kentucky bluegrass or whatever kind of a standard lawn grass you've got? Mm, I don't see what the point of that would be since our lawns become more and more acidic. I do put lime on it which changes the pH, which is conducive to grass, and it prevents weed seed germination. So, no, no horrible petrochemicals and that kind of stuff, just sort of the way well, nature works. But when, how, I, well, when I how do you feel about disappointing the chemical industry, Mark? I mean, they, they you know, um, I, you know they, 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 they're, they got, they're struggling too. you got to go out there and buy your chemicals and keep them happy, oh, right? Their, their profits are only barely obscene. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and the other part that I love is now they're, they're starting up lawn fogging again with completely indiscriminate insect killings. So, oh, wow, yeah. biodiversity and chemical industry, uh, kind of a hand-in-hand -hand thing. I, I kind of like diversity and, and flowers and bees and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to do that. So how did, how, did it, how did we ever get to the point where uh, lawns were so sacrosanct in the U.S.? I mean, they're... It's almost like, uh, you know, if you don't have a lot, if you have dandelions in front of your house, there's something wrong with you. It has to be a, a spotless lawn monoculture. How do we get to the point where that was something that we, that is not even, not just acceptable, but desirable? I'm glad you asked that question, Ed. Okay. I'm going to be campaigning soon, uh, which means, of course, I want to answer it all. No, I'm kidding. Uh, well, uh, back when I was in seminary school, to uh, uh, quote the doors, uh, only in college actually, a landscape professor put forth the concept that the reason we have low-bowed lawns in the United States is because King Henry VIII was impotent. That was a slow pitch for you, Ed. Okay, so uh, a, a, a tyrant, uh, an English tyrant's impotency is why we have green lawns? No, it's why we have such prevalent lawns, not okay. necessarily green lawns. Okay. And I will explain. All right. Well, please do. Sure. So, 
King Henry VIII could not sire a male heir. Well, actually, I don't think he could sire an heir at all. And so my, my heart through goes a out series of, pardon me? I feel bad for the guy, but go ahead. Well, uh, some people seem, I guess it is kind of part of that job, but yeah, <laughs> it either works or it doesn't. So through a series of colorful and often fatal relationships, <laughs> shall we say, Yeah. Uh, the Catholic Church kind of noticed this and said, hey, uh, this isn't really how we do this here. If you keep doing this, we're going to excommunicate you. You mean by doing this, you mean uh, divorcing wives and getting new ones? I think he did more than divorce a few, but oh, that's... He, he offed a few, didn't he? A colorful part, shall we say. I'm being very uh, a PC. Yeah, he, he was uh, a tyrant by any other name. So that particular period in time was the Renaissance. And what was the Renaissance if it wasn't Italy? You know, the, the, the painters, the sculptors, the architects, the landscapers, everything. Italy was the Renaissance. Right. So what do you do when you put up a villa in Italy since all the hillsides have been denuded from the Roman Empire? Well, <laughs> and actually northern parts of Africa, too, to fire the baths. Uh, you had to find a water source. So landscape architecture, in this case, a very brutal course, by the way, uh, was also hooked up to architecture in this relationship because the rooms of a villa, you know, laid out sort of going in different directions. You know, you go from main rooms into smaller rooms, then you would go outside the outside being designed as an extension of the interior, outdoor rooms with shrubs and bosque. Uh, those are trees, you know, like a canopy, sure, a lot of sure. gravel. Um, very, very much an extension of the interior. And if you really had money and wanted to show people how, what, what stuff you were, you would have a small area of lawn, yes, that you would make the soil you know, plant the grass, you had to water it, trim it by hand, the whole bit. We're talking 8 by 10, maybe 10 by 20 if you were <clears throat> super duper, right? So, okay. in the meantime, England is cut off from the Renaissance via the uh, excommunication. And as you watch the march of the Renaissance from Italy to England, if you will, and, and I'm doing very relative terms here, France next door, air quotes, um, you would see some beautiful gardens and some very nice chateaus, but the relationship was often uh, tangential, not real tight. So you'd have the garden, you'd have the chateau, but not a real tight uh, relationship to the two. But one thing they could do was they could grow grass, mm -hmm. and you noticed their landscapes had, you know, like what was called a parterre de broderie, which was embroidery using shrubs in a field of grass. So, so lawns are lawns are basically a status symbol back then, and that that uh, that continued into the colonial period and now into well, modern well, America. Well, there's, so there's a couple more steps here, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to tighten it up as fast as I can. So you know, no internet, no blueprints, anything like that, no cameras. It was all word of mouth. Okay, but 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 the, there was the status symbol part of that. Italy, huge thing, very very rare. Uh, France, you know, a little more nature kind of stuff. Now we're going all the way to England. They have been completely cut off. 
their statues look like concrete. Their insides, their manners dark. You know, it's it's wet. It's England. The weather's not great. They have this little garden off over somewhere. Well, we have a garden, really. Their landscape took the form of a deer park, and you would have a road that would go through it with what were considered kind of little ha-has. You know, like there's a little temple here, there's a little pyramid, there's, you know, fountain, something like that, in this huge expanse of grass. Now, we're going to go from England, we're leaving England because we're being oppressed, we're going to go to the U.S., and what do we have? We've got no architects, no artists, no sculptors, no nothing. What we're going to do is we're going to harvest the bounty of the new land. We're going to cut it down, make a log cabin, house, whatever. And that is going to leave an area around it, which is going to be grass. And the saying, every man's house is his castle, that's what it was. And that's what a castle was. See, my theory is that... that, uh, that people want to control their environment and and uh, and one way you do that is you create predictability you create monoculture I mean look at the crops here in Iowa it's, it's a monoculture existence and there's more reasons than just just control for that too but with a lawn uh, I mean there's a lot of effort and time and money and watering and effort that go into making a lawn um, that, that kind of defies logic except from my point of view People want to control it. They want to see something that is that is uh, standardized, that is very predictable, uh, that doesn't deviate from uh, a, a, a very very uh, strict standard. And that's a, a standard that you know regards the green lawn as a beautiful thing, but also it's it's one thing. It is one grass, and that's controllable. Well, they also want uh, instant gratification, if you will. So you go do your development. It goes from farm field, you know, bare soil or heaven forbid prairie and voila, I've made this mine now. Now, I just got back from Pittsburgh, which is a very European style city, and I have a picture of the lawn of the house we were staying in. It might be 10 by 15, more than big enough for what they want. The houses are very tight together. It's an incredible neighborhood, very walkable uh it's a community it is not every man's house is his castle it's a community of people that live together and by the way those you know chunked out subdivisions they're not communities they're i don't know what they are they're they're deserts if you will they're bio deserts they're community deserts or people deserts but so i i want to get to the point mark about i mean we talked about why it's a bad idea to water one's lawn and I certainly know why it's a bad idea to do that. I mean, in August, even if you like your lawn, you should let it go brown because that's what it wants to do. It isn't dying. It's just going dormant. But why would you say, in generally speaking, it's a bad idea to water a lawn? Well, it's, to me, it's antithetical to the whole idea of, of relaxation enjoyment right along with the fertilizer and all that kind of stuff. Is I don't like mowing a lawn. My neighbor mows his three or five, that's like four to five times to every one of mine. <laughs> I why why noisy gas? Well, I'm gonna spend my life being a slave to this cultural icon of weirdness. And then it, if you ever, like I said, knew the uh, knew the roots of it, you're like, wow, this is why. I'm sure, doing yeah, this. The, the roots are interesting. <laughs> the, the the story, the background, the. Uh, Henry VIII's impotency is, is an interesting uh, 
you know, way, way to trace the whole uh, development of it. But um, some people, I mean, I, I, I pass these lawns. I mean, a lot of people have just a small lawn around their home. But sometimes you come across places where there's like a couple acres of grass. And it's mowed with a riding mower, and you can see the strips of where, you know, where the mower has passed. Yeah, yeah. But I think some people actually enjoy that. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't, but I think some people actually find that relaxing. Well, like watching television is. I, I don't. Okay, it, it's a culturally assimilated mindset. I, so I, I, the, the paper shows these quote-unquote mansions, I think look like Mick mansions to me, is like you spent money, but there's not good design there. I would rather have a prairie and or a forest and or something like that that to me is far richer and that I can enjoy it. I don't have to maintain. It's basically self-maintenance. Of all the things I could do, I would rather read a book than mow a lawn, you know, or take a nap, for heaven's sake. I wrote a poem years ago, and it was very sad. It was a full moon, beautiful night, and I was mowing the lawn by the light of the moon. That was my poem, mowing the lawn by the light of the moon. I said, what a pathetic reality. <laughs> and that's when I started taking over my lawn with prairie, and now I've got beautiful flowers and but in, but and in some pla- in some places you're not allowed to do that. You can't. We just uh, you know, we, we were we were um, uh, last week we we talked with uh, we, we we did our we did our September garden Q and A, and we responded to one question from a woman who lives in a area that is governed by a a, 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 a um, homeowners association guidelines, and not allowed to have pollinator habitat. So I, how, how it you, is so. It's it is such an embedded cultural mindset at this point. It, it is it is transcended common sense and anything else. You know, it's kind of like saying uh, vinyl siding is maintenance free. Well, <laughs> not really. Maybe the right. vinyl is, but if you take the screwdriver and put it between the vinyl and the side, it'll go into your structure because yeah, the vinyl is quote unquote has integrity, but everything underneath is rotting. So right. yeah, your your lawn is, looks like this controlled thing. But you are in the process of destroying the very thing you need to survive, which is biodiversity, resilience, and that kind of stuff. Lawn has no resilience. So I, I, I presume you work these uh, philosophical and functional preferences into your architectural work as well. I certainly. Oh, okay, you know what? So I, I, I think there's a place for mowed lawns, as. And as a as a uh, an anomaly, so sure, I want this twenty, maybe thirty foot diameter circle of lawn. I'll, maybe I want to play bocce, you know. Maybe a croquet. Very very good, you know, badminton, something that big. But 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 this oceans of lawn? No, I, I yeah, I think it's hideous. I and then to think I'm putting chemicals on it, and like I said, very indiscriminate. It, yeah takes out everything there's no yeah well mark i gotta run to a break uh i never realized that henry the eighth has something to do with the lawn across the street from me but uh, now i know <laughs> mark thanks for joining us my pleasure folks we've been talking with mark Clipsham. he's an architect he's got opinions can you tell and uh when we come back we're going to hear a different opinion but on the same topic kathy burns going to join me we're going to discuss a farm bureau article that says hey go out there and put herbicide on your lawn back in a minute on the fallon forum 
Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of architecture by synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back again to the Fallon Forum. You know, you can support this alternative to those crazy shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor. Or if you own a small business or if you're involved with a nonprofit doing good work, you can also be, uh, consider becoming a sponsor of this program. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Vibes Kitchen and Bar, serving creative interpretations of American classic food and drink. They've got great customer service a relaxed and welcoming atmosphere, and an awesome outdoor patio. Vibes is the perfect place for parties and for watching your favorite sports team. Now learn more at Vibes' Facebook page. All right, Kathy Burns is with me, folks, and we're going to talk about how the Iowa Farm Bureau, and again, Farm Bureau, a national organization, Iowa Farm Bureau, one of the bigger players. We want to talk about how they published an article that as I read it, encourages individuals to use herbicides in their backyards. That doesn't sound good. Uh, very much so. <laughs> and it came across my Facebook feed. It just popped up. Well, we, we're urban farmers, and so farm things pop up on our feeds. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to read this one because the title intrigued and scared me. <laughs> and What was the title? Uh, the title was... Why my yard isn't organic, and that's okay. <laughs> and it may it may be okay, you know. But uh, this was written by their consumer content manager, Teresa Bork. Um, she also indicates uh, she refers to herself as an editor. She describes the challenges of maintaining a tidy yard while she and her husband are both working parents. I can very much sympathize. <laughs> yeah, right. Very much sympathize. She describes several issues. Creeping Charlie. I hate that. I love creeping Charlie. <laughs> I hate Bare and weedy <laughs> patches and some rogue plants popping up from a neighbor's squirrel feeding activities. <laughs> so she thought she would try to curb this using some non-chemical methods. She put down some newspapers over some of the weeds and some mulch uh, to try to keep some patches tidy, and she just fell behind. Then, um, citing what she describes as very serious issues resulting from the weeds, she resorted to applying a chemical to the problem areas. The the problems that she cited were yeah, what, what are the that problems she mean? said the weeds could cause damage to sidewalks, damage to the home's foundation, and damage to the porches. Huh. I guess we don't factor in the chemicals damage to potentially your kids, pets, well, uh, the water. <laughs> well, I, it's it, it, it just 
dumbfounded me because she goes on mm. to describe her choice of an herbicide and relates it to why farmers also need to to use herbicides yeah. to control weeds in order to have the best produce. And she just, there were some quotes in this article that bothered me enough and I, I <laughs> had to write to them and ask her to respond, but never got a response. So we thought we'd just discuss a few of these. Yeah, I am. Um, you know, I, 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 I hear the comparison to, will farmers use chemicals? And that's, I, I have, I, even though we don't use chemicals to grow food ourselves, and I, I, I want to see us switch as much as possible, mm-hmm. as quickly as possible to you know, organic agriculture, I, I understand that if you've got a crop and it is being mm-hmm. threatened by mm-hmm. a, a insect or a fungus that, that could potentially you know, eliminate the crop, uh, I, I get why you might want to apply a chemical. Yes. In her case, we're talking about a lawn. She's talking about a <laughs> we're lawn. We're talking about a lawn. And it seemed like it was a way to talk about chemical use on larger crop areas by empathizing with it personally. It just felt a little backwards. But here's a quote. As much as I would love to have a chemical-free yard, the reality is I don't have a lot of options. And the question I asked, which I didn't get an answer to, what options did you consider? Yeah. Did um, you consider Mark Clipsham's suggestion that maybe you shouldn't even water the lawn? <laughs> <laughs> well, it gives that the... That saves Im- time and money and water. Just just making that statement without even discussing yeah. available options, because there are some, uh, gives the impression there's not a variety of ways to eradicate unwanted plant growth. So yeah. it's it's um, that was pretty upsetting. There was another quote, without crop protection products... U.S. farmers would lose an average of 52% of their corn crops and 49% of their soybean crops, according to the the Weed Science Society of America. The Weed Science Society. I I love that. Right. Um, (laughs) My question was, can you provide a link to this study? Because I really... You couldn't find it? I I could not. And and also, you know, I wonder if... The study included organically grown crops. Well, I also wonder if the study was financed by the chemical industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that would have been interesting. Uh, I mean, we, you know, we we do lose some of our crop, uh, and we, you know, again, I'm not I'm not philosophically against the application of chemicals in some cases. Just in the 35 years I've been growing food, I've never done it. If you're going to um, have your whole family <laughs> income for a year wiped out. Yeah. I can see I get that. the you know or, the need. Or if if it's an important element of the food chain, and and there's I mean, I, I imagine what what would we do if the the the, uh, the legendary plagues of locusts were to come through, darken the sky, and descend on a field and eat it? You know, I mean, I, I suppose there's no no protection against that. Just like there's really no protection against hail. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the closest you get to protecting yourself against hail is insurance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's protect- a whole other issue. <laughs> I know. That's yeah. a whole other issue. So I, I kind of get it, but you know, again, there, 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 there are so many ways of addressing crop problems that don't involve chemicals. And again, it felt like a way to use her lawn experience to promote widespread just standard chemical well, use. And that's what Farm Bureau is all about. You know, I mean, it's it's all about big ag. Well, the, yeah. another quote was, farmers work to control weeds year-round to prevent crop loss and to protect the environment. Even in January? To protect the environment. <laughs> yeah. How, I, I, my question was, what are some of the ways that weed controls protect the environment? Mm. I, 
I'm baffled by that one. And okay. an, applica- an application of atrazine or, or, uh, or, <laughs> or, or glyphosate know. is going to protect the environment? I don't yeah. know. That it's, without explaining it, that seems like a yeah. wild sentence to put in the middle of, mm. a, of a story about agriculture. Um, one more quote. When you see an applicator working in a field, over 75% of what's applied to the crop is actually water, experts say. And my question was, what's in the other 25%? And how much runoff might there be in streams and other natural water systems? Even some of the, the, the organic uh, pest controls that we use, like, well, diatomaceous earth is a different thing, but even copper sulfate or neem oil. You know, if you look at the uh, look at the labels on those, it, it's a very very teeny tiny percentage that is ag- that is the actual active mm-hmm. ingredient. Like what, I think two percent in some cases. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to say that it's seventy five percent water, um, that that worries me. That there's twenty five percent of something else in there. It's also a moot point. Yeah, if they're applying point. tons and tons and tons and tons of something that's seventy five percent water and twenty five percent chemical. That adds up to a well, lot. We'd like, of we'd like to have Farm Bureau actually respond mm-hmm. to some of our concerns about this, and so maybe we'll try again. We, but, we um, should try again. It's become, unfortunately, very common for groups that don't want to talk with you just to ignore you. Anyway, that's too bad because <laughs> we'll talk to anybody, won't we? I won't ignore you. <laughs> I won't ignore me. Hey, uh, thanks, uh, Kathy, and thanks to our guests today, uh, Vicki Harrison, uh, June Sakara, and Mark Klipsham, and to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Vibes Kitchen and Bar, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake, Family Psychiatry. And thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Birds and Bees Urban Farm and Bold, Iowa. Remember, your support for this program matters a lot, folks, so go to the Fallon Forum website where you can learn more about what you can do to make a difference. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.